X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon. It's Friday, June 12th. Today, back in the day, the day after June 11th, the day after when the University of Alabama was integrated at the point of a federalized National Guard, the day after the evening JFK gave his Oval Office speech calling for the Civil Rights Act, the height of the Civil Rights Movement, Today, back in the day, June 12, 1963, Medgar Evers, a World War II veteran and Mississippi Field Secretary for the NAACP, who had worked to overturn segregation at the University of Mississippi, was assassinated. It was the first political assassination in the 1960s. It was not the last, nor was June 11 the last ripple of hope. Four years later, today, back in the day, June 12, 1967, the United States Supreme Court in Loving v. Virginia declared all U.S. state laws which prohibited interracial marriage to be unconstitutional. Let us put that in some perspective. Loving v. Virginia was 53 years ago. That means more or less than half of the voters in the United States of America were born when it was okay or at least when it was legal according to the Constitution as interpreted by the United States for a state to have a law banning marriage between people based on the color of their skin. The arc of the moral universe is long, but that doesn't seem long ago enough. Today on The Local, your quick six headlines, a look at the Democratic Party of Oregon with Chair Casey Hansen, reflections from the primary where Oregon is showing up nationally as the party prepares for November, and an interview with Multnomah County Commissioner Jessica Vega-Peterson about the discussions and plans to reopen the county and about early childhood education. First up, it is today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. Two big things off top. The Portland City Council is planning to cut $15 million from the police budget, but will vote again next week. Here's what happened. $15 million amounts to 84 police positions, but that is far short of the $50 million cut that activists were calling for in a historic parade of significant testimony. The county was set to pass the entire budget last night, along with those cuts on Thursday night. But the budget had an emergency clause attached to it. What does an emergency clause do? It makes the law go into effect immediately. The current budget ends on the last day of June. However, the council needed four votes to pass the budget with the emergency clause. Of course, we only have four city councilors right now. Loretta Smith and Dan Ryan are running right now with the election in August to fill Nick Fish's fifth seat. And when Commissioner Chloe Udaley voted no, there were only the possibility of three yes votes. As for Udaley, she said the cuts were not nearly deep enough. So the council voted to remove the emergency clause and voted again. This time, the three votes approved the first reading of the budget, meaning it's going to get a second reading next week before it can officially pass. And if that's not enough big news for one day, not long after that city council vote, Governor Kate Brown pressed pause on reopening the state. A Thursday evening announcement, that's just last night, from the governor's office, Brown has issued a week-long statewide pause on all pending applications for reopening. Here is what she said, and I am quoting, The noticeable increase in COVID-19 infections in Oregon over the past week is cause for concern. In order to ensure that the virus is not spreading too quickly, I am putting all county applications for further reopening on hold for seven days. This is essentially a statewide yellow light. It is time to press pause for one week before any further reopening. This one-week pause will give public health experts time to assess what factors are driving the spread of the virus and determine if we need to adjust our approach to reopening. I will work with doctors and public health experts to determine whether to lift the pause or extend it or make other adjustments. 
Remember, of course, the Multnomah County was scheduled to go into phase one of reopening today, Friday. That means Multnomah County will wait one week longer, and Hood River, Marion, and Polk counties will have to wait for phase two. So the wait begins again. In other coronavirus news, here's your daily dose of data. Oregon Health Authority reported 178 new cases. That's the largest number of new cases in one day since the beginning of the pandemic. Remember that previous story about what the governor did? The 178 new cases almost certainly impacted that decision. The state's total number of known positive and presumptive cases is now 5,237, 5,237. The bulk of the new cases came from the metro area, 47 in Clackamas County, 43 in Multnomah County. The Salem area also had a significant number of cases with 34 reported in Marion County. This new one-day record statewide comes just four days after the previous record was set. That was Sunday, June 7th. Remember that? The OHA reported 146 cases. You heard that here. On Sunday, June 7th, the OHA reported 146 cases. We talked about it here. Officials also announced two new coronavirus-related deaths. That's 171 Oregonians now known to have died from the disease. According to the Oregon Health Authority, the reasons for Thursday's record number of new cases, again, widespread testing, increased contact tracing, active monitoring of close contacts, that's all good news. Also, workplace outbreaks, not good news. Washington State is approaching 25,000 confirmed coronavirus cases. They have 1,190 coronavirus-related confirmed deaths. Oregon jobs numbers are improving but still not looking all that good. Three months into Oregon's coronavirus outbreak, the state's weekly jobs numbers show that fewer workers are losing their jobs. That means thousands of laid-off Oregonians are being called back to work. Oregon recorded 36,000 fewer continued unemployment claims in the last week of May. That's a 12% drop from just the week before. What's a continued claim? That's from workers who were already unemployed and had filed as such and are filing for continued benefits. The 267,000 continued claims the end of May was smaller than any single week since mid-April. That's thousands of Oregonians going back to work, but that total is still 10 times higher than before the pandemic. The number of new jobless claims fell to 8,500 workers last week. That's down from nearly 90,000 new claims that one big week in late March. Though again, new claims are still coming in at twice Oregon's average rate. But some good news, the recent drop in new jobless claims has helped Oregon begin to catch up with this huge backlog of benefits applications. There were six figures worth of Oregonians waiting on benefits just last month. Now the backlog is down to the five digits. The reporting says 13,000 regular claims plus thousands more self-employed workers who are newly eligible for unemployment benefits. The state at this point has been unable to say how many of those workers are still waiting. David Gerstenfeld, remember him? He's the acting director of the Oregon Employment Department, stepped into the position just two weeks ago. It was just two weeks ago after former director Kay Erickson was ordered to resign. Gerstenfeld says the department now has staffers from other state agencies and members of the Oregon Army National Guard. That's right, the National Guard. Maybe not as historic as forcing integration over George Wallace's racist Alabama objections, but way better than gassing protesters. The new staff have been calling benefits applicants to guide them on working through the benefits process. Those volunteers began making hundreds of calls on Tuesday. So according to the official tally, although it's leaving out a bunch of people because of all those self-employed folks, but here are their numbers they're reporting. 486,700 total unemployment claims have been filed since March 15th. 97% have been processed. 13,341 left to go. 
plus, you know, all those others. According to the governor's office, Kate Brown is planning to call a legislative session on police reform, or at least including police reform. Momentum is building for Oregon lawmakers to pass police accountability legislation in a special legislative session. Today, state prosecutors added their support for a bill that would ensure disciplinary actions against officers could not be reversed by an outside arbitrator. This is the bill we talked about with Lou Frederick on this very program. According to the governor's office, Brown agrees the legislature should pass it in short order. She's preparing to call a special session to take up the bill in the next few days. Police reform advocates are starting to say that this bill is a small drop of what needs to get done in hopes that there will be bigger moves included even in the special session. The People of Color Caucus, made up of nine Democratic lawmakers, is pressing at least one other bill. That would ensure the Department of Justice of Oregon would lead the way on investigations into police shootings and other deaths at the hands of officers rather than local DAs. This resembles what happened in Minnesota when Keith Ellison took the case from the Hennepin County DA, who had had a history of cooperating with officers accused of misconduct. The Portland Police Bureau's new chief, Chuck Lavelle, was sworn in Thursday morning. In a conference after his swearing-in, Lavelle said he wants to return the police bureau to true community policing. Here's his quote. It's time for it to come back in a way where people in the community know their police officer, where an officer has accountability to a community because they have to show up every day there, provide service, and work together to solve the problems in that community. A newly redeveloped park in southeast Portland is getting a new name to honor a prominent black woman leader, Verdell Burdine Rutherford Park. The space formerly known as Lynchview Park will now be called Verdell Burdine Rutherford Park, according to city officials on Wednesday, honoring the civil rights leader and historian who lived in Oregon from 1913 to 2001. That's a long life. Rutherford helped lead the civil rights movement in Oregon. President of the Portland chapter of the NAACP, she helped pass the Public Accommodations Bill, also known as the Oregon Civil Rights Bill. That was in 1953. It outlawed discrimination in public places on the basis of race, religion, color, or national origin. Renaming that park was a project kickstarted by former city commissioner Nick Fish, who directed a naming committee before his death in January. Rest in peace, Nick. Juneteenth is coming up, and a memo sent to employees this week, Nike's CEO, said the corporation will begin to recognize Juneteenth as an annual paid holiday. Juneteenth is also known as Black Independence Day. It is celebrated June 19th. It marks the emancipation of the last remaining slaves in the United States on June 19, 1865. That was two years after the Emancipation Proclamation ended slavery, but word hadn't gotten around to a bunch of people, including in Texas, when they finally did it on June 19th. Twitter and Square announced on Tuesday the companies will also recognize Juneteenth as a paid holiday, and media company Vox announced a similar thing. We'll be spending that day, Friday, June 19th, for a full day teach-in on racial equity and social justice. It is our fourth annual Juneteenth teach-in. Programming will start at 6 a.m. and go all day until a house show that night. Folks are still asking, what can we do to support the black community and promote anti-racism? Here's some of the ideas that have come in. Of course, shop at black-owned businesses. We're sharing a list around. Make charitable contributions to local advocacy organizations. Educate yourself. Talk to your neighbors. Go to a vigil of peaceful protest. Keep your distance when you do. Write your city council members, state lawmakers, national lawmakers, the White House. Pay attention to what's happening in the city hall. They're going to be voting again next week. And make sure you're registered to vote in November. Make sure your friends are, too. And that's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. Here's Emily Gilliland with what's next. Thanks, Jefferson. The Democratic Party of Oregon is the largest political party in Oregon. What does a chair do? What does success look like? Where is the DPO showing up for racial equity and social justice? Here are Chair Casey Hansen and Jefferson Smith with more. 
When there are now a million Oregonians registered to vote as Democrats. The next largest group is non-affiliated voters, 946,000 Democrats. There's a, a million and 2,307 registered Oregonians as Democrats. And then 711,000 Republicans. Today we are joined by Casey Hansen, the current chair of the Democratic Party of Oregon. Started her party leadership as Multnomah County Precinct Committee person following the 2004 presidential election, then later served as the Multnomah County Chair of the party. She is the first out lesbian to chair the DPO. Casey, welcome. Hey. <laughs> nice, to, nice to talk to you, Jeff. Hey, Joe. It's been a while since I saw you. It's nice to hear your voice. How are you doing? How are you holding up? Anything new in your world other than, you know, there's a global pandemic and we're trying to deal with centuries of racial oppression? Yeah, it's just a, a disharmonic convergence, right? Jeez. Um, you know, things are staying very busy for me. It's, uh, it's a full-time, full-time gig with the Democratic Party, and um, I'm committed to it. And uh, I'm working with a, with a wonderful set of officers and a bunch of staff and, you know, a great cadre of Democrats all through the state, even though we are, uh, you know, doing most of our discussions virtually. So, in fact, all our discussions virtually. What do you have <laughs> to do? Getting very used to Zoom. <laughs> what do you have to do as state chair of the major party? How do you how do you gauge your success? Uh, well, the the ultimate gauge, of course, is getting wins. But uh, to get there, it's just making you know having a lot of communication with a lot of folks. I'm on the phone a heck of a lot. I'm on Zoom meetings a heck of a lot. Um, some of you know people know i run meetings and participate in uh, uh zoom meetings and stuff but uh what some folks may not know is like you know we all we also have somewhat of a national reach we connect with the uh, uh folks democratic leadership throughout the country and that's enabled me to be on several panels about vote by mail and promoting that just last week i was on a panel with um washington dc democrats yeah, with uh, Dave McDonald from Washington State and uh, a couple of other voter activists, Dave and I were specifically talking about vote by mail. Um, after the panel, the D.C. Dems, uh, you know, collectively uh, decided that they were going to officially make it their goal to uh, have D.C. go vote by mail. And if anybody saw what happened in D.C., I don't know if you can judge it against what the debacle in uh, uh, Georgia that just happened the other day, but D.C. was... Uh, pretty much a mess with long lines and uh, crowded polling places and misfunctioning machines and ballots people didn't get. So, you know, extolling the virtues of vote by mail is pretty important to Oregonians because we, you know, we believe in the people's ability to vote. <laughs> so Let me try Let me take another crack at my question. Sure. The, in another way, the Democratic Party of Oregon, under Casey Hansen's leadership, will be successful if blank happens. If Democrats win, if people get involved, um, if people, you know, uh, not only get involved now, but for the long haul to make, well, in, in the words of our late friend Sue Hagmeyer, to wait to make people's lives better, because that's what the Democratic Party is all about. Um, and And obviously doing that is like getting the message of the Democratic Party out, you know access you know from every every single issue that fits in with the democratic platform be it racial equality access to health care jobs 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 fair jobs 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 you know the whole nine yards i mean 
we're real about our activism. We're real about what we believe, you know, regardless of what you look like, who you are, who you love, or believe it or not, even who you're registered with. Uh, you know, every Oregonian should be able to access, you know, the basics, basics of life. <laughs> so and that's let's what start the Democratic with, Party is about. Let's pick up with racial equality, with racial equity. You mentioned it. How is the DPO now showing up for, how has it been, or what does it need to do now to change how it's showing up for racial equality? Well, for years, the Democratic Party has been a full-throated supporter of racial equity. But to truly get to that, we and, frankly, any organization or individual needs to look inward as well as outward. Uh, last year, after I came into office, we established the real special committee. That's uh, the Racial Equity, Accountability, and Leadership Committee in the DPO, led by Dr. Rosa Colquitt, and comprised of mostly Democratic activists of color. And that that committee is first looking at the DPO itself to see where and how we can improve simultaneously, especially in the wake of recent events. Our leadership is working with elected folks of color in order to support their efforts in, in instituting policies and laws that can address systemic racism in agencies, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and then bring our, our all our communities closer to racial equality. It's not going to be something that obviously happens overnight. We spent 400 years getting into the mess we're in right now with improvements along the way, but we really obviously a sea change is need, needed, and and we're we're working in partnership with our uh, black democratic leaders to be part of that. Relevant to what you're talking about, how are we going to go about electing the delegates to the National Convention, and what do you see happening with the National Convention under the the need for social distancing and all of the COVID problems? Okay, so two answers to that question, and I apologize, I'm getting a little feedback. That's what I'm hesitating a bit. Um, number one, Oregon, which normally conducts conventions. Well, we conduct conventions in the five CDs as a normal process that, that to select delegates at the at the congressional district level. That's what I mean by CD. And then after that, we conduct a state convention to elect the re remainder of the 60-odd um, uh, pledge delegates, candidate pledge delegates to the Democratic National Convention. That's normal MO. Obviously, with COVID, we had to uh, change the format, and uh, a proposal was made and voted on by the State Central Committee to convert to basically a vote-by-mail and remote voting voting system. And we did that. They approved it in an overwhelming fashion, and we're conducting the vote-by-mail, vote remote voting uh, delegate selection process. And uh, we had, we had. Uh, I'm very excited to report that this doubled our our participation in Congressional District Two, which is a congressional district east of the Cascades. Now, as far as what's going to happen with a Democratic National Convention, uh, DNC members just also voted remotely. We uh, just completed the balloting a couple weeks ago uh, to allow the Rules Committee to adapt to. COVID um, by instituting a, a partial virtual or maybe a full virtual convention. Now they have that latitude via our vote. 
so it just remains to be seen. What What is your advice for candidates who are receiving or have received police union contributions? Oh, wow. Uh, well, candidate contributions are always an, an individual decision. Um, so they're, they're going to have to search their own soul and their own heart, whether it's a police contribution, contribution what police department it is, you know, and, you know, how it fits with their own ideals and platforms. You know, I'm not going to bust, bust the chops of a department that I don't know of that does, you know, that is fully engaged with community policing and, and truly believes in protecting and serve. We're going to have to leave that. We're going to have to leave that as the answer. But Casey, I want to say thank you so much for being with us. And I hope we can do this in a little while because there were some real questions that people want to hear more about on policy stuff. Okay, dpo.org. People want to get involved, go to dpo.org, and they can find out their county parties and get connected. Thanks, Casey. Appreciate you. We now know the state's decision on opening up Multnomah County into Phase 1, i.e., we're not approved to open today as hoped. We have a discussion with Multnomah County Commissioner Jessica Vega-Peterson and Jefferson Smith on opening standards, health equity, public safety reform, and a sprinkling of preschool for all. Now, we know that there are 36 counties in Oregon. If we didn't know that, it's a good reminder. One of them is the county from which we broadcast. It's Multnomah County. I don't know if it's the famousest, but it's the biggest. It hasn't yet opened up. We're going to talk to Jessica Faker-Peterson about that, Multnomah County Commissioner for District 3. Also going to talk about early childhood learning. And Commissioner Vega-Peterson is on the line right now. Jessica, how are you doing? Very good, Jefferson. How are you? I am well. Everybody in your world safe? Everybody making making good on what's going on right now? We're doing the best we can, just like everybody. Is Multnomah County going to enter phase one tomorrow? That's the hope, and that's the plan. So we submitted um, last Friday, Multnomah County submitted our application for reopening to the governor's office. Um, we had a briefing yesterday afternoon to make sure we were still on track to open, and now we're waiting to hear if we've been approved from the governor's office, and that should be happening today. There has been an uptick in COVID cases over the past week. Does that worry you as we move into phase one or as you try to move into phase one, or you think that's just mostly about testing going up? I think it's something that we definitely want to watch, and that's something that um, you know our public health folks said yesterday is, is definitely something that we are going to be watching. Um, they did feel that Part of it is because we are doing more testing, which um, which we should be, and we're going to continue to do more testing. So potentially we'll even see more cases grow, you know, over time as testing becomes more widespread. Um, but it's something that we take seriously, you know, when you see numbers go up. One of the things, one of the points, though, that Kim Taves, who works for the county, made is that if, you know, she's like, think back to where we were when we were talking about this in March, the the graph that we were afraid of seeing was really that that ski slope that went straight up right that curve where cases were doubling um day after day after day that was the potential that COVID-19 had for spreading in our community the numbers that we're seeing right now where they're going up and down a bit um you know we were watching those but it's way different than where we were when we started in March and thought of of how bad this could get the last piece, as I understand it, the last criteria, the last criterion that the county has to fulfill 
are the 122 contact tracers, 122 required, 65 hired, I think another 30 in the pipeline. Uh, has that been the biggest bear? What have, what, why is Multnomah County behind other counties in opening up? You know, I don't look at it as Multnomah County being behind other counties. We're doing the smartest thing for the largest population in the state in our county, right? We're the, we're the most dense, we're the most urban, and, um, and we had to think about what was the right way to open to, to make sure that we we're following, you know, the public health needs for our community. One thing that Multnomah County was, um, was dedicated to from the beginning was making sure that every Multnomah County resident was going to be, you know, that we were putting, um, we were putting measures in place that was looking out for every Multnomah County resident. And that includes people in our black, indigenous, and people of color communities, right? Um, we already know that brown and black folks have been hit harder by this across the country. And that's true what we're seeing in Multnomah County as well. So when we thought about um, opening up and we looked at what the state was requiring, um, Multnomah County made the decision that we weren't just going to do those things and make sure we were meeting those requirements, but that we were going to go beyond that and put in additional criteria that made sure that um, the testing that was available, the contact tracing that was available, the people who were doing that work were reflective of our community and that there were ways for every Multnomah County resident, including our bright and black communities, um, to, to have the, you know, to have the resources they need in addressing COVID-19. So that was one of the things that, that we've been working really hard on and putting in place. In terms of the contact tracers, um, that is something we are on a goal of meeting that requirement. There was, um, they're, they're in the middle of the hiring period. They did a, you know, they put the, the job posting out and they got over, they received over 1,000 applications for those positions. And um, in a lot of those applications, there were people who were applying that had the um, the cultural background, the language need, you know, the language um, knowledge, all of that of things we were looking for to make sure that the contact tracers that we were hiring are reflective of our community in Multnomah County. So that's on track to, 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 for us to meet that goal. I do want to ask about one other thing. You've been working on early childhood education, trying to get towards universal preschool. As I understand it now, there are two competing, well, I'm going to call them competing, two simultaneous at least, initiatives to try to fund and put in place universal preschool. What are the difference between the two? And do you think at some point they're going to combine? Yep. So, so there are, so preschool for all is the initiative that I've been working on. And it's something that I've been working on with community for over the past two years. Um, we, a couple of years ago, um, I convened a task force to really come together to answer the question, what would it look like if, every child in Multnomah County had a chance to experience a preschool that was right for them, that was joyful, and that was inclusive. And, um, and we brought together, you know, there were 42 different individual, or I'm sorry, there were 42 different organizations. There were 100 different individuals that were a part of putting together this report that was released last summer that, that had this vision of what it could be. And it was everybody from, you know, we had parent voice on there. We had early learning experts, schools, healthcare, housing. Um, you know, a, a wide variety of folks who were there to talk about what this vision was. And it really came out of the need that, um, and the knowledge that for a lot of kids who were showing up in kindergarten and first grade, they're already coming behind their peers because they haven't had the same opportunity. They haven't had experienced the same preschool environment. And, you know, those are black and brown kids. Those are kids from low-income households. Those are children whose families are speaking languages other than English in the home, children with special needs, 
children of incarcerated parents, right? There's a whole group of children that aren't getting the same start. And so we designed a system that really centered how we can best serve them, as well as serving an ecosystem right now of, of early learning that doesn't have enough public support whose workers are not making living wage and who don't have the career development and professional development opportunities to really make sure it's a st sustainable system where they can stay and have a career. So all of that went into the preschool for all um, report or preschool for all report, as well as the work that we've been doing since then. I think at the same time there, uh, the DSA was working on looking at how there can be, you know, a, sh a, a shift in how wealth is, is shared in this, community and they were looking at a revenue measure that um, that would tax high income earners and, and, and then use that funding to fund something that was socially good and they um, they landed on universal preschool because it is such an important and critical need um, and so that was kind of how two different um, two different works started happening since then we've had a lot of conversation about you know what it would look like to come together I think both of us have had um, you know, reflections on our policy and, and responses to what the other's doing in the hopes that there's a path to come together. Um, you know, I would say right now the biggest the biggest differences are how the genesis and kind of the direction of, of where we go. For Preschool for All, we're really focused on making sure that we're supporting the whole ecosystem. So it's a mixed delivery model. So it's, this is not like a system where we're bumping out a school system um, and, and just adding a couple more grades there. We really want to make sure that as we move forward with this, we are, um, we are supporting the existing child care providers, the existing early learning centers, um, so that the licensed home-based providers aren't going to be left out or even forced to close because of a new preschool, you know, publicly funded preschool model, which unfortunately we've seen happen in other places like um, like, you know, Washington, D.C. or New York City when they've moved forward with this. So we're trying to avoid some of those unintended consequences. And I think, you know, really the fact that we are we are looking at how we can make sure that the kids who most critically need it, um, brown and black kids, that we're doing something to change a system and to put a new system in place that actually supports them early on and is making upstream investment, that's exactly the kind of change that we need to have right now. So the universal preschool proposal would fund it with a tax on higher higher income Portlanders or higher income folks in the county. How does your plan fund it? It's, we're looking at a similar mechanism, so it's not that different. Um, we're, there's a little bit of uh, difference in rates and you know what exactly that looks like and how much money it would raise. You know, we've taken a lot of time with the preschool for all team and um, you know within Multnomah County to look at what's our existing capacity in the early learning system to actually grow this so that we can uh, we can we can serve the number of children who actually need it and what's a realistic time that we can grow so that we're not losing some of the components that are important to our program like bringing all providers along with us and growing those um, quality pieces that are so important to have the long-term benefits for kids that research shows right so so for us we don't we know that like within let's say um, five years we will probably our program would cost about 150 million dollars right and that would grow over time so we don't need to go out for quite as much money as what they're estimating they would need we're talking to Jessica Vega-Peterson, County Commissioner. Thank you so much for spending the time. When's the next thing to watch? When do you need to get this out? You're trying to get this passed in November, I think. Uh, yeah. When's the, the sort of decision point of what you get referred and when you refer it? 
Yeah, there's a lot of activity that's happening in the next couple months. So we're going to be um, we're going to be putting a poll into the field to see where voters are at to make sure they're just as strongly as with us as they were um, when we did our poll last time. And we're going to be having conversations, you know, within Multnomah County and especially with my board um, to make sure that they are on board with moving forward with this. And then we would ask them to refer this to the ballot at the end of July. Commissioner, thank you so much for the time. Thanks, Jefferson. Great to talk to you. Have a great day. You too. Thank you to Casey Hansen and thank you to Commissioner Jessica Vega-Peterson for joining The Local and thank you for listening. Big thanks to our production team, editor amazing man Will Romy, writers DJ Ambush, Casey Colton, Kate Kay, Julia Oppenheimer, Joey Palchuk, Miranda Selinger, writer Sherwood, and Jamie Zangwill. And thanks to co-executive producer Emily Gilliland. Thanks for original journalism and research by the Lund Report, the Oregon Health Authority, COVID19.healthdata.org, the Oregon Historical Society, Portland Business Journal, the Willamette Week, the Oregon Encyclopedia, Pamplin Media, OPB, the Oregonian, the Statesman Journal, Bike, Portland Street Roots, KGW, KETU, and News Partners, Bridgeliner, and the Portland Mercury. And thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown in about 30 minutes. It's a good day to rate and review. It's a good day to share The Local with some friends. And if you have a story to tell, Email us at the local at xray.fm. Let's stick together while we're apart. Thank you, democracy. And talk to you Monday. X-Ray.